Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? I'm doing very well, James. Thanks. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Janusz Wellen. Janusz is the co-founder of the Deep Mindfulness Collective, as well as being a hugely experienced meditation teacher. He has gone through over a thousand hours of formal teacher training and is an advanced facilitator within Shinjin Young's Universal Mindfulness System. Janusz, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's great to have you on and to kick things off. There's a quote here that I've got from you, which I really like. It goes, we can fall in love with our lives, our teams and partners, every experience of our lives. All that's required is training the body slash mind systematically with kindness. And that's a really, really big, interesting, juicy claim to kick off with. Our relationship with the world and our internal experiences in some ways, it can be addressed or can be improved by training. What does that training look like for you? Yeah. I started meditating when I was a teenager. I was reading from books and sort of finding various source material with no contact with teachers. And over time, I found that I could get so far, but then at some point I just sort of hit a wall. And I eventually found that there were certain lineages and certain teachings that programmatized any level of growth, anything a human being can experience, we should be able to sort of programmatically move ourselves there. And very luckily, that tradition was also talking about classical awakening. And so a claim as sort of bold as something like classical awakening and sort of given that, well, people have been training themselves to move there for thousands of years. The combination of those two is really interesting to me. And so that's something I started becoming really fascinated with. And training in those traditions is how I got to that place where everything is basically, I don't want to say everything's trainable, but the amount of things that are trainable experientially are far more than I ever thought they would be. And what does that training look like specifically in a meditative context? The way I look at it is that meditation has been so vastly under-considered of what it does. It's been relegated to this world of relaxation or tension reduction or this kind of thing. And my experience of it is more like someone invented this beautiful rocket ship and someone came along and discovered like, hey, it has a reflective surface. Like we can check out our hair and make sure our outfits look good. And that's what it became popular as uh, because that's what is needed, right? People needed to check their outfits and make sure everything's okay. But people forgot that the nature of meditation was built to transform every aspect of our life. And so when we say, you know, what does it look like if I'm working with somebody or a group, it's very much based on their goals. Which direction do they want to go? Do they want to go towards being more compassionate? Do they want to go towards having better communication? Are they interested in the path of classical awakening? It gets very tricky because we start talking about every avenue of human growth and the baseline of that growth, which for me is what mindfulness is. It's the sort of raw material underneath growing as a human being. It's the sort of like the uh, mathematics of science. Everything is built off mathematics somewhere down there. Mindfulness is the sort of rudimentary element that if you're working on that, it can build on anything after that. So it's very hard to answer that question in specific, but maybe you have more specifics to ask. Yeah, it's interesting you use the analogy of the reflective surface. That was definitely one of the criticisms of the mindfulness movement, right? 
there was this idea that like you're taking an additional marginal tertiary benefit and then saying, guys, look, I found a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was beneficial. It's good that someone did that. You mentioned that like some of the more perhaps ambitious goals of the meditation journey, mm-hmm. including classical awakening. Mm-hmm. What is classical awakening? Yeah. So I have a kind of pan-traditional definition. So from my experience, this works with most of the traditions that I work with, and they'll all define them differently. And I'll just say, well, the reason different traditions will define this differently is as we enter material that's pre-linguistic, below, you could say, the level of the cognitive mind, which is a very strange thing to try to wrap our minds around, literally, we enter into material that is untranslatable. So you can come back and translate it as anything. You could call it emptiness. You could call it true being. You could call it God. Wholeness. Any of those things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Emptiness, wholeness, nothing, something, many things, all all the things. At the same time, right? So (laughs) my definition is once the body-mind experiences the world in two particular ways, it defaults at being able to metabolize the pain and difficulty of existing, which is a natural experience, pain that we have, but it can metabolize that by default, and it's geared towards the joy of existence by default. Once it's shifted over to that, again, by default, that would be the first level of classical awakening, and then it unfolds from there. And that looks different for different people, but that's the idea. It's interesting that looks different for different people, right? Because in some ways, we all have the same wetware, the -hmm. same hardware, software mix. Why is it that classical awakening can look so different for two different people? It's because, again, we're going down to something that's so completely rudimentary. And everyone will label that rudimentary thing differently, but we can call it emptiness. I think emptiness right now is my favorite sort of thing that we might talk about. People have contact with this material that is they're not there, the world isn't separate from them, or they are merged with the world, or you know any number of ways of describing this. And as you emerge, you have to emerge in the realm of objects. It's me, it's the world, it's my sort of personality. And so as you begin to take a shape, you begin to take a particular shape. So for one person who potentially had a lot of stress or anxiety, in my case, it was a lot of self-consciousness. Self-consciousness was sort of part of the way that I experienced reality. I didn't know that that was happening. But as I sort of came through that material, the self-conscious matrix that I navigated the world from sort of cracked. And it was just hilarious that that was how the mind had been relating to people in the world. So for me, it looked like internal freedom around being myself. But for someone else, it could look like emotional freedom and the ability to communicate better. Or it could look like I'm finally not afraid when I'm on the basketball court. It could look like any one of these numbers of things because there are infinite ways that it could be applied. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is there's a fundamental thing that shifts and you can call it emptiness or whatever else. But your experience of that not being realized looks different. So for you, it might be self-consciousness. For someone else, it might be anxiety. And upon having that realization, well, the thing you notice is the biggest difference, right? The contrast between that checks out. Exactly. And you can program which things you're tending towards. You can't control it exactly, but you can say, okay, this is the facet of my reality that I want to see through or have greater insight within. And then you move in that direction. The way you express this, I really resonate with. I mean, it's the same way that I I sort of think about these things. Two things I think are interesting. One, that means the thing that you really struggle with 
ends up being quite a precious thing because it ends up being the thing that you aim towards and it helps dictate which practices are right for you. But when it gives way, it makes the expression of that thing very unique. Like I can really hear you right now saying, you know, on the other side of digesting some of this stuff, you know, the way that it felt to you could have been like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, you don't worry about yourself. You know, yourself doesn't need to get in the way. And we hear a lot of people talk like that. For me, the first package was definitely anger and violence. And so, when that stuff was sufficiently digested, the way it felt was, oh, the path is love. It's all right. about love and compassion. Exactly. And that's really the thing that I want to share. And that's really where I want my research to go. But if I think about it, you're right. It's not necessarily that that's the universal truth. It is the expression of my own digestion of the thing that was most important for me, which was the sort of anger dynamic. Yeah. And what happens in meditation is unless the, pra well, uh, let me describe something. So. I teach in what I call complete practices Love that. and the, the premise being that you want to practice in a way where there, you can't make a mistake. A lot of what happens is people start meditating and they think, oh, my mind's wandering. I've made a mistake or I'm distracted. I've made a mistake. The, the metaphor I've been using thinking about recently is how the stories that I've heard is that uh, Native American people would use every single piece of the buffalo or the you know, mm -hmm. animals that they hunted. And for us, and as a teacher, the goal is to learn how every single piece of our experience is actually extremely valuable. And so you just pointed at something of deep truth, which is that, you know, if we feel very alone, right, the experience is that oh, there's so much loneliness. Well, if we really work through that, that is the place that experience in the body, that yeah. sort of constellation of sensations is probably the place where we can feel connected. It's the part of us that feels connected, that's attuned to that, but it's fractured or it's numbed or dulled or something. So working through that then is that we find the actual locus of that connection. Or if we feel separate from the world, that part of us that feels separate is the part that can feel connected. Maybe those are the same thing, but it often ends up being the thing that is the difficulty that is actually the pathway to the freedom and the actual experience. It's the same material, but we realize, oh, it was just burdened with a sense of lack or loss. And I don't know if this is your experience or not, but in addition to it being this special place for our own growth and development, mm -hmm. it seems to me that the place where you're most stuck early on, that place where you're digesting a lot of that data, that also becomes when it, you know, if you're, if you move into being an instructor or a teacher or a guide, it seems like that's exactly the place where you can best meet people and specifically meet people. So if you've gone through addiction or you've gone through violence or you've gone through this kind of trauma, which is very natural for all of us to go through something like that, it really gives you a touch point in a way to work with specifically those people. Have you had that experience as well? That's exactly the case. And there is a sort of freedom that occurred when I realized that I didn't need to be a different teacher. I didn't need to be everyone, yeah. everyone's perfect. You don't have to be you everybody's know, teacher. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't need to happen at all. Yeah. I really just needed to talk about the truth from my experience yeah. and try to grow myself. And so frequently it is something I've just gone through or something I've just metabolized that someone will come to me and say, Hey, how do I deal with this fear of X? Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, well, I have a little bit of experience of that as of two hours ago. So let's yeah. Talk about it. yeah, that's very alive. That's very living, isn't it? That's that you're not just, you know, talking about a textbook you wrote 10 years ago no. to people. You're saying, no, this is living. This is the kind of thing I'm going through yeah. right now. And how weird that you asked me today, because it's just the thing I'm going through. Yeah. Yeah, and it gets into a little bit like sounding mystical, mystical, like, oh, yeah. the universe is bringing, but whatever. Uh, maybe <laughs> yeah, it's whatever. unconscious. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's unconscious sort of stuff or whatever. Maybe there, maybe it is. Maybe there's groovy vibes out yeah. there that are aligning yeah. us all, which would be cool. But 
being a human is a super weird thing. I mean, like I'm agnostic about a lot of this, but, but the truth is it's weirder than I think we think it is being a human. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's more fun than I thought it was too. Yeah. And one thing I just want to touch on, which has been talking about things that are live. I think that we have a capacity for love and compassion at a level that I didn't think was possible a few years ago. And I think a lot of the pandemic for me was really seeing this space of freedom of feeling that everything is not just compassion, because we think of compassion as like, I'm helpful to other people, but just compassion for every part of myself in that every part of myself is like good and wholesome and deserving of love. And for me, that's been at the core of my practice for the last couple of years. And I just led a silent retreat where that was the central theme was sort of breaking down this separation that people will often think that there is between, you know, insight practice or sort of the awakening stuff and the heart practice and the compassion stuff. And actually those are very much linked together. So I want to put that in there. I think we can't help but just stop there for a minute because that's awesome. As soon as I hear you say, you know, there's the potential to think of ourselves as good things and every part of us is acceptable. That sounds like game over to me. I mean, that's the thing, you know, anything to say there, like since you've been like building retreats around sort of integrating these things and thinking about it from a compassionate, I mean, if people are listening today and that feels like a kind of far off alien place, but something in them is like, that would be great if I could just wholesale accept what I am now. I mean, what's the sort of, I mean, maybe it's too big of a question, but what's the way into starting to move towards that realization? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, the short, I could answer that in several ways. One short version is to find someone and there are, you know, there are good people who know that path, who know the path of deep, deep self-acceptance. The window for me was recognizing that my mind will innately treat some things as unnatural and some things as natural. And typically it'll treat the things that it thinks belong to me, the experience of me as natural. These are mine. But then like that pain in my knee, like that's not supposed to be there. I need that to go away and to start to see the various drives and pushing and pulling within us, which is again, natural to see those as just nature. So if I hate part of myself to recognize, oh, of course you hate part of yourself because that's a protective measure. It's wonderful. It's so lovely that it's there to protect you and keep you safe. And, yeah. and it's starting to recognize this is the whole, like every part of the Buffalo, the part of me that judges people, I could say, well, I want to get rid of that part, but it's like, I'm never going to get rid of any part of myself. I could get it to maybe change its role or, or function a little differently. But until I actually start recognizing, like, it's a wonderful aspect of myself. I've found when we talk about, you know, the sort of alchemy that comes out of difficult parts, the part of me that's very judgmental, which I didn't realize until, you know, a lot of practice that it was a protective mechanism and that it was meant to manage the world, to keep the world kind of in order so it felt safe. That part is without carrying all that pain that it carried, it, it's actually very good at assessing things and wants to have aesthetic sort of explorations. So that's what it's good at. And now that's sort of what it does much more than, you know, judging people. It's really starting to learn how to fall in love with every part of ourselves. And if we can't, then to love that we can't, you know, sometimes you'll be, you know, guiding someone they'll say, oh, I feel so blocked. There's so much blocked. It's like, great. Let's fall in love with that block. Why are we trying to get through this thing? It's so blocky. It's like cosmically blocky. It's just doing such a good job at stopping the emotion. Like, let's just take a minute and really love that. 
And often people don't know how to compassionately meet every one of their experiences, often because they're embedded in the experience. And from inside the experience, from a first-person perspective, things hurt really, really bad. And that just drives the system straight rather than being information in the system for the system. It's identical with the system, which is really tough to do anything with. Yes. And the other thing that people often don't realize, which is especially for people with quick minds, that the part of them that understands what I'm saying, the part of them that can network things together and probably listens to your podcast and, and, and is like, well, these, I love these ideas and how everything sort of weaves itself together. That's part of me. And that there is experiencing the world that is outside of that, that is larger than that. And it's scary to let go of the idea that the part of me that understands the world is just a facet and there's experiencing outside of understanding. And so you're already starting to touch on something we were hoping to talk with you today, which is you're starting to talk about multiple parts of the self. You're not saying the self. Yeah, there's no, no single thing. You're saying, oh, well, once you get it, once this part knows it, then we know it. But rather, I've heard you say just a couple of times now, this part of the self knows, but there's lots of things outside of that part of the self, which are part of you too, that don't know. And it's not enough that the top part gets to model this and say, oh yeah, non-dual, you know, I know how it is. But yeah. All the other subsystems. So I know you do some work with internal family systems. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, in a sort of increasingly popular way to be thinking and maybe talking about some of the things that happen in meditation. But I'm really quite a big fan of the way that you bring that together with your ideas about awakening and your ideas about growing up and cleaning up. And so anyway, I'd like to open the space to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'd love to. So IFS, if people don't know internal family systems therapy or theory, it's nature. It comes from a transcendent sort of path that people don't know. It's partially family systems theory combined with Dick Schwartz's sort of big experiences in non-dual practice, uh, different kinds of meditation. So I come to it since I have a lot of years of practicing and teaching the sort of weird, you know, side of meditation, non-self, emptiness, etc. I come with a heavy like layer of that. So I think about it as almost transcendent IFS. And a lot of what I'm doing with people, if I'm working with them doing IFS or working with, you know, groups or this kind of thing, is teaching them the fundamental like wetware tools of how the mind can work with all these different parts before we even get into the idea of, you know, the various parts within me. It's sort of broken down to a very fundamental layer. So one example of that, I'll just give an actual meditation technique is that to notice that the mind experiences the world in pieces of things. If you look around, you're, you're surrounded by objects. There are things, oh, there's a thing, there's an object, there's an object. The mind is breaking the world into objects all the time and mental objects, they're really the same thing. And so if we have to defend all of those objects, life is very hard. The main object that we typically need to defend that we never see is me, the sense of myself. If we can recognize that like any one of these objects, they're actually something that's produced in the mind, not to say that there isn't physical matter out there, but the old sort of adage, like the tree does not know that it is separate from the sunlight, no. like at all. If we can see that we are similarly sort of transparent, it's a kind of traditional non-self insight, we can then have access to this much more spacious way of relating to the world. So in a very practical way, just noticing that there is the experience of parts any piece of my experience. And then we can experience the whole, the totality of all of our experience, the sort of broad scattershot, everything that is apparent to our system in this moment. And those track really well with two aspects of the mind, which is attention, which is like a laser, points at things, focuses. People think meditation is honing that part, but that's a piece of it. 
and awareness, which is more like a lantern, which takes in our larger experience and doesn't really care about the edges or borders of things. To just notice at any point, you can focus on one thing and then you could focus on your entire experience. And that seems very dumb. It seems like, yeah, sure, I can yeah. do that. But systematically sharpening yeah. that and noticing what happens to different pieces of my experience as I do that, as I toggle back and forth between those two. And I have a whole you know, system that I work people through, but just that fact that the world is experienced either as a whole or as parts is where I'll be guiding people consistently. And then we get into the idea in IFS that there are parts of me that have drives. Traditionally in Buddhism, there's this idea of clinging and aversion. And so it's anything that wants anything, we would talk about that as being a part. If I could hand you a magic wand right now and you could change anything about this moment, there are parts of me that would change things. And so those are parts. We start to talk to those as though they were their own character or personality. And there's aspects that wouldn't change anything at all. And awareness, this overall experiencing, it doesn't need anything to be different. It doesn't need me to be different. It doesn't need you to be different. It doesn't need time to move forward. It could just sit here in dead air. And this part of me that does want to go, it's like, I feel the momentum. I, I, it's, it's time to talk. It's time to move forward. That's a part of me. And then to know that awareness, it, it's actually totally fine. Nothing has to happen. And at first we have contact with that. We're like, okay, I see it. Sure. And then over time, we start to recognize that as a kind of home. And it's amazing to rest in a place where we could say, oh, how wonderful. I, this experience that is in my mind, in, you know, it is my mind doesn't need me or any part of me to be different at all. It's like, oh, what a relief. Because yeah. we wake up and we have this huge demand on ourselves. As soon as we wake up, we're, you know, go, go, going. But to actually really deeply be able to rest in this place that doesn't need anything from us is incredibly relieving. We hear these cheesy things about how, you know, the peace we're seeking is already here. It's like, it's kind of literally here. And it's pretty easy to find, actually, if you just sort of look. But the mind will say, no, that's not important. There's another part of your experience that's really important, your to-do yeah. list or yeah. your newsfeed. Yeah. And it breaks back down to a piece of your experience. So bringing it back to the whole is very key. Yeah, something you mentioned in that that I think is super interesting is like we have this other function called awareness. I don't know that we people generally realize we have two things happening. I think of it as just alternating attention, if I'm speaking conventionally. The idea that we have a part of our awareness that's non-judgmental mm -hmm. and just holds space yep. is kind of interesting. What does that look like? How do I know that I have that? Yeah, well, it's up to you. We can talk about it. We could also do it. I don't know if, given the pace of your podcast, if we want to actually try it. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's do it. Okay. So look in front of you somewhere that doesn't isn't a monitor. The representation can kind of screw things up. So just pick some point and rest your eyes on that point. Something that's not text, not a monitor. And notice you can zoom into details of that experience. You can sort of look at all the layers or sort of details. And as you do, the more you zoom in, the more the kind of rest of the world fades to some degree. But the detail is possible. The mind is a little bit like a laser. We're very used to this. This is what we might call focus. So now take a moment to take in the space that's in front of you, this, the volume of space. You can let your eyes move if you like, but just take in the sense of the volume of space between you and whatever objects are there. Right? You can't do that. You can't take in that large piece of material without using awareness. So this is just a demonstration. Okay, this is something different. This is not a point. This is a set of things. You can also, as you take that in, this can be fun, take in the space that your body takes up. Let those two mix together. 
if you want to get really crazy, also include the space that's behind you. And if this starts to feel confusing or like, I can't quite do this, that's you're going in the right direction. <laughs> it won't make sense. It will actually feel like confusion. So what's very interesting is awareness can pass through any object. Awareness is, yeah, we can be aware of an object. We can be aware of the space within the object, the space behind it. So also notice as you attend to this space, also notice that this space isn't asking anything of you. So ask and don't let the mind answer because it will give a quick answer. Get, get an experiential answer. Is this space asking me to do anything or to be anyone? Is this asking me to complete my to-do list or all of those various roles that I'm asked to engage in? Is it asking me that? And if we want to take it even a step further, it's to recognize what an incredibly gracious way to relate to me, little old me who has all these troubles and, you know, has to get stuff done and worry and that you don't need me to be different in any way whatsoever. And so it's just a little tiny sample, but it's right there. It's available. It's just, how do you attend to that? That there is a big part of our experience at all times that doesn't need anything from us. But what happens is the parts that do need something, they need to solve something, they need the, the new iPhone, they need to worry or they want to click the next you know tab or scroll Reddit or whatever. All of those needs, because they come to the foreground and because we're focused on them, they become the center of our experiencing and they feel like it's us, feels like it's me. Whereas actually our nature is this awake awareness and everything happens within that. And so if we're seeing and experiencing the world as objects ourselves being the, the big object, the important one, it's painful. It's me versus the world. I've got to protect. I've got to, mm, I've got to manage myself. If I look weird, then it's threatening. But the premise is actually literally the volume of our experience. So there's a, a saying that the Buddha said that, you know, a teaspoon of salt in a cup of water is undrinkable, but a teaspoon of salt in a lake is unnoticeable. So part of the premise is to keep the mind open like a lake as often and as much as possible. And notice that it actually very directly affects how difficult our experiences are. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I'm interested in how we do that then. Like if I'm a listener and I want the lake, I don't want the glass of water. How am I going from glass of water to lake in practical yeah. terms? Invest, invest my friends. It's a compound investment issue. I often use the uh, metaphor of AI and training learning computer. So if we think about a learning computer, or learning AI, and it needs clean data in order to learn to begin to function in a certain way. So meditation is just giving it a certain set of data. Again, we're already always meditating all the time. So we're giving the computer data to, to, to reinforce, right? And if we're focusing on the worries and concerns, et cetera, those are getting reinforced within the system. They're, those neuropathways are getting rewritten. So just a moment ago, we spent three seconds observing our experience of awareness. Well, that's wonderful. And that's a good chunk of clean data. But how much is it, of that is valuable compared to the weight of spending an entire day not doing that? So formal meditation practice is a time where we can just get really clean data, even if that data feels like chaotic or difficult. If we're working with a complete practice, nothing is a problem. Distraction is not a problem. It's just the mind observing a part. And we come back to the whole. And it becomes a numbers game. The more we can attend to this material consciously, the faster we'll progress towards living in that way of life. So having a daily practice is really powerful. Having a community that you belong to is really powerful. Working with a teacher who can explain how to do this in every aspect of our life is very powerful. 
doing silent retreats is it's luckily coming back online now that people are in human contact and they're very, very, very powerful. I just taught a silent retreat and it's remarkable how much growth a human being can make in a few weeks, or rather one week even, compared to our everyday meditation practice. So the reason we meditate is because we're investing in a way of relating to the world that is very, very different than the sort of default mode, which we, if anyone doesn't know, the default mode network in the brain, when that's just left running, we tend to come back to self-referential parts, meaning like parts like that are need to defend themselves. And it feels very anxious. We're constantly like uh, worried because we're defending this sort of survival part that needs to exist. And I want to talk about that investment that you mentioned a moment ago. Do you recommend beginners do anything in particular? And when does that change and beginners recognize, well, now that's sort of intermediate to use the hobby analogy yeah, and it's time to change gear. Yeah, there absolutely are. I think my challenge is that I tend to teach to an intermediate group, people who have a little bit of experience, maybe on an app or something like that, or people who are just like, I'm willing to jump into the deep end because I can see where this will go. So as a beginner, I think the simplest tip is that most of the rules or the ideas that we bring to meditation are usually not the case. Like the idea that the mind is supposed to be silent is crazy. I mean, sorry, there's traditions that really stick around that, but it's just activity. There's nothing wrong with it, right? So, okay, the mind is talking. Well, the question is then how do we deal with that functionally? Or the idea that we're not supposed to be fidgety or distracted or sounds aren't supposed to pull us away. A technique that I'll start people off with is what we did earlier, which is a whole part meditation. So you could open up to your experience of the whole. And then when distraction comes, you just say, oh, it's part, that's natural. And then you introduce that part to the whole, and then you just hang out in the hole. And then you're distracted again, of course. That's how distraction will work. If you're observing the whole, distraction will come in the form of parts. You can flip that and you can observe something that is a part, like many meditations, you observe just your breath. And what that'll mean is your mind will be pulled towards something else. So you just simply say whatever label you want. I have my specific set of labels, but you say, okay, oh, that's just something else. It's not a problem. And you return to the experience of this material, whatever you're observing in that way. So it's to know that there's a way to practice where you can't make a mistake. And the part of you that's beating yourself up, like we love that part. It's trying to you know, make you safe and okay, but you know, don't beat yourself up would be my beginner's suggestion. I love this because this is far less about trying to force the mind to be something. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a 2 billion year old intelligence, you know, like it's grown for a long time and it's tuned up in a good way. You know, like you don't want to get rid of a lot of this machinery. A lot of machinery is already doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So I hear from you and I really appreciate this, Yanish, and um, it's something I try to stress as well. You're learning about yourself and it's the learning that's liberative yeah. rather than trying to force the self to be one way rather than another. In fact, just by learning about yourself, getting good data in, I think we could talk about this a lot, but you know, getting good data in, because that's very close to my research, helps the system update in optimal ways over time. Exactly. Yeah, it would be very poor design if there was something that would, had been evolving for, you know, four billion years since the early, yeah. early stages, that yeah. if a being four billion years out had a bad dad or like, you know, grew up in a crummy place, it just couldn't function forever. Like that would be a terrible design flaw, right? And I know this sounds crazy and it sounds like uh, kind of mystical, schmistical, but the body mind knows how to heal itself. Like just in the same way, if we get cut, it knows how to heal itself. We just have to put the right conditions in place. 
right. our suffering and our difficulty can be healed, but we have to be able to hold that in the right environment. And the right environment tends to be one that is very, very compassionate and doesn't need things to be different. But it is, you know, we want to give ourselves nice tasks and games to play and make it fun yeah. and entertaining yeah. because there's a part of us that wants to be entertained. Why not? Yeah. And yeah. with that, the system will just on its own sort of move in this direction. Wonderful. Janish, where can everybody find you? Oh, well, I'd be delighted to hear from everyone. So the best place for folks to reach us is the hub, which is our website, which is deepmindfulness.io. And there you'll find links to our YouTube channel, which is just Deep Mindfulness, or our Instagram, which is also Deep Mindfulness, or our live stream, which we do as often as possible, which is surprisingly Deep Mindfulness. So you can find us in any of those places. And I really love to hear from people. It's really fun and delightful. And we're doing all these great projects. We're doing in-person retreats. We're doing weekend you know, virtual retreats, this kind of thing. So I would love to hear from people and hear about their practice. Janusz, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was great. This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. And as always, we'll be back next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 